Welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, insights and analysis on football. In this edition, we turn the topics of debate over to you, our beloved listeners, and give you the opportunity to challenge our pundits with the issues you want to hear discussed. Now, I'm delighted to say that uh, Dr Duncan Castles is back with us again. He's not managed to uh, sneak off anywhere into the woods. But uh, we're also delighted to say that for a second uh, episode in a row, we've managed to get the wonderful Jonathan Northcroft mm. Esteemed writer, football correspondent of the Sunday Times, darts extraordinaire. Mm. As we've discussed, he's uh, he's quite he's a bit of a lone signing, but you know, with Johnny <laughs> McFarlane away, it's always good to have another Johnny on the block. So we're going to kick <laughs> off with uh, with uh, a question which was um, sent to us by one of our regular listeners who goes under the Twitter handle Why Always Lukaku, and uh, mm. he he asks um, not only about the uh, decision making process, stroke wisdom of giving Phil Jones a new contract at Manchester United. But indeed, why would you give Chris Smalling one as well? Now, Duncan, given that how bad the defence have been at Manchester United for the majority of this season, they've come under a lot of criticism, not so much recently, obviously. Can these deals, and sorry, these renewals, can they be justified? Or, or even, never mind, can it be justified to sign two players like Smalling and Jones up on longer contracts at all? I do find it very strange. Um... If you look at what Manchester United have done in the last, uh, well, inside the space of 12 months, they've given three centre-backs, who um, none of whom are regulars in the first team, uh, long, new, lucrative contracts. So starting with Marcus Rojo, then Chris Smalling, then Phil Jones. Um, now, I, I can understand them keeping perhaps one of those players, um, Chris Smalling would be the most obvious one because he he's played the most games of the three and I think is he is the the most predictable in his performance on the pitch. Um, they've all got drawbacks, but I think Smalling's probably the best of those three. But everyone can see that the club needs an upgrade at centre back. Um, we presume that they have uh, continued faith in Victor Lindelof and Eric Bailly. So why do you want to give? Uh, players who are not going to be first choices, new contracts. Um, I think Phil Jones is, is particularly strange. Um, I was looking at statistics uh, at Manchester United. He's in his eighth season. He's made 143 Premier League starts over eight seasons. So he's averaging 18 starts a season. The most starts he made was in his very first season at the club. Um, I talked to several people at the club who, who, who have told me that Jones is happy being a backup centre back. He's not. He doesn't like um, the pressure of being in the first team lineup every game, um, and so if you couple that with with his his obvious injury issues, it just makes it strange to to think you give this guy another four years um, on a significant salary uh, alongside Rojo and um, and Smalling. Where if you were to remove two of those salaries from the books, you'd have enough money to sign a top elite centre-back and at least pay his salary for, for the, the, the period going forward. So um, I, I think it's Wood, Ed Woodward again thinking um, these players have resale value. Uh, Phil Jones is English. Uh, there'll be other clubs in the... If he doesn't work out for us, there'll be other clubs in the Premier League who, who would like to buy him. If I put him on a long-term contract, I can get £20, £30 million pounds for him. That's fine, 
but it's predicated on um, a belief that Phil Jones will accept to leave the club. And I, I personally, I don't see that Jones will necessarily accept to leave the club in the same way that Rojo, when, when offered the chance to move to Everton in the summer, said, no, I don't want to go there. Um, I'm quite happy staying at Manchester United. Um, thank you very much. Duncan, I have to say, I, I almost <laughs> fell off my chair when you said the word words four years. Um, I, do you think you'd excuse me while I just go phone Ed Woodward and see if I can get a contract as well? Because honestly, that seems like money for old rope as far as I'm concerned. Now, Johnny, mm. uh, if this kind of policy is to, uh, in any way, um, to become, well, as, as Duncan said, um, sustainable, never mind profitable, surely these players have to play because no one's going to pay £30 million for a guy who you know, isn't even making the bench. Well, I actually, I think this is all about the market, actually. Um, now, I, I watched a player called Diego Rico um, at the weekend. You probably know well. Time for Bournemouth um, from La Liga. Absolutely out of his depth in the Premier League. Cost £11 million. I mean, bog-standard defenders at Bournemouth are costing £11 million. If you can get Phil Jones, um, age 26, knows Man United inside out, play backup centre-back... And your your expenditure is something like twenty to twenty five million pounds on wages for the four years. I actually think that's a fairly decent deal for the club. Um, I I I think what is odd, as you alluded to, is is to do that with Jones, Smalling, and Rocco. That's that's always been an Ed Woodward policy, which has been. I mean, I remember him giving Nanny a new contract, um, despite the fact David Moyes didn't want Nanny. But but Ed Woodward's idea was <clears throat> we'll give him a new contract. It means we can sell him for more, and and it really didn't pan out that way. But I, I think the idea of, of keeping players um, is, is more important than it's ever been just because it's so difficult to buy players of any quality. Um, Man United do need an, an upgrade at centre-back. Um, but if I, I would argue that Phil Jones, when fit, is actually a fairly decent utility man to have in the squad. Um, I think when he is fit and he plays, he's a, he's a, he's a decent player. The problem is the, the 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 fitness thing. Obviously, I actually actually got far more doubt about uh, Rocco and, and Smalling in terms of Man United quality. Duncan, does this smell of the old homegrown rule about how many players you need to have in your twenty-five man squad? Because obviously, two of those players are homegrown. I don't think Manchester United have an issue with homegrown players at the present. Um, look, as I said, they they, they have to upgrade at centre-back. They've been planning to upgrade at centre-back regardless of, you know, we, we know the previous manager wanted to do that and put a lot of pressure on them to do it, but they're planning to do it regardless. So if you've got five centre-backs, um, why give three of them new contracts when the other two are all, already on relatively long-term deals? Because if you're, if you're planning to bring in a new starting centre-back, that's going to take you to six, which is more than than any club needs. I mean, I, I was wondering maybe um, if Manchester United supporters are in favour of giving Ed Woodward a four or five year contract <laughs> as a winner option and see, seeing if that increases his transfer value so they could uh, they could move him on to another club. <laughs> uh, Duncan, you, you, your touch is light as Picasso <clears throat> when it comes to criticism, I have to say. So, well, I want to say thank you very much to at Y Lukaku for that. Uh, and we want to move on. And as everyone knows uh, who listens to this show regularly, <clears throat> we often get 
lots and lots, maybe sometimes hundreds of questions all on the same subject, so we can't just sing one out. And that's what <clears throat> I'm going to do now. I'm not going to single out uh, one particular person, but we do want to address the situation at Leicester City and the seeming constantly mm. speculation about Claude Puel. Now, as Arsene Wenger always used to say, I like to have a fox in the box, and we've actually got one on the show today in Johnny Northcroft. <laughs> he is our fox in the box. Uh, he's, he wrote a, a very... <clears throat> very excellent book on their uh, championship winning season with some great insight in the dressing room and uh, how that things actually uh, went that, that way. It's called Fearless, is that correct, Johnny? That's right, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. So get, get yourself uh, onto Amazon or your bookseller of choice and uh, look that one up. What's your take on the unrest, Johnny? Do you think it's justified? I'm so torn about Claude Puel. Um, I I understand the criticism because I you know I, I live in Leicester and a lot of my mates are Leicester fans and I think there's a disconnect between how Leicester um, have been as a football club and what the tastes of the fans are and 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 what Claude Puel is as a manager. So to drill into that, um, you know, this is a football club where the the the, the glory days actually for a lot of fans are still the Martin O'Neill era despite the title winning season. They loved the Martin O'Neill era, and you think of that team. It was it was wham bam. It was physical, um, and and it was rugged. Um, then you look at the title winning season, where <clears throat> built on a hugely impressive defence um, and an incredible counter attack, fairly straightforward football. Now, Puel, um, I think is a is is a very very competent football manager um, who is has got a pretty decent understanding of of, of the game. Brings in. Um, a sort of possession-based style, um, a much more patient style. <clears throat> it's alien to the taste of Leicester fans. Um, I think, I think, I think two things about him actually that that he that long term that that mm -hmm. disconnect is just not going to be, it's not resolvable. Um, and that coupled with the fact that the results have, have disappointed in the last few months, I think means that he will go. But I think they might look back at Claude Puel and think that he was a really important manager for Leicester because if you look at if you look at what's if you look at how Leicester played against Spurs for example I mean they they, they were fantastic they were a, a young vibrant fearless football team until they got in the box and then they got very nervous but playing really great sort of um, modern football really 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 in, in, you know in, impressive young group of players and the way they play and that's quite a shift from where they were after the, 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 the that terrible season, um, after the title winning season in terms of recruitment and so on. They just they weren't able to find what the next step was going to be. I think he's given them the next step. You look at the job Puel did at, at, at Lyon or at Nice, for example, very, very similar. A guy that gets a lot of young players together, gives them their start in the game. He gave Ben Arthur, he gave Lacazette their starts. He gave a young Eden Hazard the start at Lille. That is what the guy does. And Nice, for example, after Puel left, were able to then get into the top three under Lucien Favre. So I, I think that the next manager is going to inherit something really pretty, pretty decent. He's also going to inherit the problem that Puel has been almost defeated by, which is Jamie Vardy, who, you know, fine player as he's been, is not quite what he was and has to be managed in the later half of his career. And, and Puel's certainly failed to do that. Um, I think it's an interesting situation. I don't think he's going to be Leicester manager long term. But as I say, I think the club might end up being grateful to him. Duncan, do you see this as being a clash of styles between what Puel wants to do and what the fans seemingly want from their team? Well, I, I 
think when I watch Leicester City, I see what, what Johnny is talking about. I see a good football team stocked with a lot of young, talented players. They made some very good signings. I mean, James Madison, for example, arguably the signing of the mm. season and, mm. and, and what he's done and how important he's become to a team that is playing good football. But all the time I'm hearing from around the club that uh, Puel's at death's door, uh, the owners aren't happy with him and 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 it seems a number of the players aren't happy. We had Peter Schmeichel sort of basically <laughs> blaming uh, Puel for where the club was at present on um, on television at the weekend, and, and identifying him as the issue, and, and saying that uh, if if they if they change the manager, they're capable of finishing uh, fifth in the league. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder where he got that information from. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was just after talking about how Casper would like to, to move to a bigger club was, uh, was, was when he came up with that part. But Johnny, what do you, what do you think the potential of the club is? Because I mean, we, we talked in the last podcast about Liverpool's record, 125 yeah. million profit. That surpassed the profit mm. Leicester made in, the, in their first season in the Champions League. They've got a great squad of players. Um, what can they achieve with, if, all, if all the parts are put in place? Yeah. Well, that, that, that is the existential question for Leicester, actually. What, what should they be aiming at? I mean, I spoke to Harry Maguire last week and I think he, he struck a chord with fans because his take was that they've got to try and make the top six, the top seven, and they've certainly got to do something in the Cups. I mean, that, that is unfinished business for the fan base because the great team of the 60s, as well as coming close to winning the league, they got to an FA Cup final and, and, and failed in the last hurdle. And actually that, that hurt the club more than not winning the league back then. So one of Puel's problems has been not taking the cup seriously enough, tinkering and so on. So I, I, think, they, I think they aren't going to be of the size of, of, of the big six, obviously, but they can, they can expand that big six to something else. And they can they can play in Europe certainly. They can play in getting the Europa League. They can puncture the the top six now and then. I don't think long term they they can win the league again. You know they're trying to build a hundred hundred million pound training ground, um, which will be absolutely stunning. The ownership are pretty rich um, and have managed their business pretty well and can invest further in the squad. Um, it's it, it, it's it's and I don't think the fans. They have been portrayed sometimes as, as kind of spoil. Oh, they want success. No, they don't. What their their gripes are along the lines I've talked about are, are more about style and and character identity. They don't expect to win the league again. They don't expect to win things, but they do want to have more of an adventure. I I think it's a brilliant job to go into, and the next manager is going to be a very lucky guy. Johnny, we, we obviously all know about the tragedy which which ensued at the club earlier this season and the, the loss of the chairman. Do you detect? I, I don't know, a, a change or a difficulty in change of leadership there, which is maybe part of the uh, the issues which are going on in the club? Uh, no, not really. Um, because, I mean, Top or Iowat, the, the son, is is obviously now in sole charge. But he actually always, he was the one that, that, that drove the football business anyway. Um, and, and Vishai, his father, was was the kind of, Eminence Grease, the the the, the consulary that that Top would consult on on big decisions, but he's Top was Top's the football fan, Top's the the guy with the the real sort of passion for it. Um, so I don't actually, I don't think it's it's I don't think it's changed much in terms of the structure. I think it obviously will have had an enormous impact on on just the 
the family on, on, on top himself and and also I think Susan Wheel and the chief exec was very close to to Vishay and and there's, there's, there's probably a, still a, a sense of shock and and loss but I, I don't think long term it should hold the club back or change its character too much because I expect top to to basically try and be the image of his father and as I say he always ran the, the football business. Thanks for that insight, Johnny. That's that's mm. fascinating. And uh, as a Leicester City, perhaps a, a club and a team we don't speak uh, so regularly about on Transfunded Podcasts. So it's very, very good to have that insight mm. on this particular episode. Mm. Um, our last question uh, for this particular um, <clears throat> podcast it comes from Swap Nil, which sounds like a rather harsh trade to me. Um, <laughs> ASWA, four Ps and a C, just so you know who you are, Swap Nil. And it's quite an interesting one and maybe slightly controversial, which is why I'm simply going to ask the question and let you two answer it. Duncan, you first. Why do you think that most TV pundits make average or worse managers with all the tactical analysis they do, which seems to make sense? How do their teams struggle? What's missing from them? <laughs> um, well, I think, uh, as, as some managers have pointed out recently, no one ever um, lost a a game in a TV studio, although um, tactics Tim Sherwood, I think, has come close on a few occasions. <laughs> um, 10-0 down, isn't it? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's the easy job. Um, it's just as uh, our job is, is far easier to talk about things in retrospect, watch a game, see how, how things went wrong, um, detail them, explain them, and, and uh, if we do a good job, explain them. And, and try and demonstrate how it could have gone better. Um, and you know, the, the job of management is obviously far more complicated than the tactics alone. As as Johnny alluded to earlier, um, these days one of the biggest issues is is um, managing players um, and uh, getting them to buy into the tactics you want on the field. You've also got to manage the owners. You've got to um, have the, the wherewithal to do well in the transfer market. Um, and, and I think I think an element here is that uh, punditry has become a very lucrative business. You know, the, the the top pundits on Sky and BT Sports are extremely well paid. Um, they get to be involved in football. They get a lot of exposure. They get a lot of I think uh, adrenaline buzz out of the job. Um, and, I, and I think it actually probably takes away from the pool of potential managers because you have. People who in the past would would have looked to management or coaching as a as a way to be con for their continued involvement in, in football and for the livelihood and obviously these top players don't need need it for a financial point of view anymore but I, I think uh, it's a, it's a much easier life being in in the studio um, and getting that exposure that way and that, and that uh, involvement in the game than it would be to to do the the hardest job where. There's usually only one successful individual a season in the Premier League these days. Everyone else gets criticised for their performance. Now, Johnny, I'm going to have to address the elephant in the room, or in fact, you're going to have to do that, because I'm going to give my theory of why Gary Neville failed at Valencia. Uh, for me, I see Gary Neville as being a particularly astute, articulate, intelligent, obviously knows football inside out, um, yet he did have that rather sort of disappointing uh, spell. Um, I think it was maybe five months in charge um, in La Liga. Personally, I, and again, I'm speaking from the outside here, I see maybe his, maybe his best, maybe his most uh, sort of, um, uh, big, his biggest quality, if you like, uh, is as a communicator, which is why yeah. he's done so well as a pundit. 
but he took a job where he couldn't speak Spanish. So he couldn't, he was almost, you know, operating with one arm behind his back, taking a job in the Liga. And he's been incredibly self critical, even flagellatory in some cases. When you've read interviews where he says, I'm just not good enough and you, you won't see me in the manager, I feel that's a great loss because I, I feel as if he just took the wrong job at the wrong time. And yet, you know, it's ironic that his job now is because his communication is so good. How, how, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree actually because we, we, we can't really we can't really judge him on on what I think was a you know a rash a rash decision and an alien environment um, a, and a job where you know actually at a club where it's been a bit of a graveyard for some very good managers. Valencia, it's a very difficult club to get right, um, and you know it lasted so so briefly. Um, it, 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 th- there's a funny thing about Gary Neville when he was. You know, you're, you're quite right. His communication is 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 excellent. His is his understanding of the game is excellent. I thought he was going to be a really good Manchester United captain. He waited a long time before getting the captaincy, and he didn't appear to enjoy it very much. And uh, and he quickly, well, it's towards the end of his career, and it, it, you know, quickly stepped away. Um, maybe there's something in him that that isn't um, prefers to be, you know, the sort of the other voice, but not actually the the leader. Maybe there's a sort of Something in his personality where he's not not comfortable doing that, and that that told in management. Um, I mean, I, I think that I think Duncan framed it very well. A lot of the reasons. I think to add to it, the with managed with pundits and managers, the, the managers I see now, the top managers are so obsessive and so versed in their craft, and have taken you know so much effort to study and and to prepare that. I don't think, I think it's like almost an either or. I think if you finish your playing career and you want to, to go into management, you know, yeah, you can, you can do what, what Frank Lampard did and have a very brief punditry career while you're doing your badges and all that sort of stuff. I don't think you can, oh, I'll do a couple of years on TV and then I'll go and be a manager. I, I just think it's too consuming. I don't think you can get away with that. I think you have to prepare properly for management these days. The one exception to the rule might be Jurgen Klopp, who... Got it. Got the job at Dortmund really because he'd been such a sensational TV pundit in, in on German TV, and that was part of part of his career. But again, he'd already qualified, so you know maybe maybe uh, maybe it's not an exception. So you've you've ruined my next question, there, John. Ah, I was going to sorry. ask you both of you to name one manager who has been successful, who's gone on or gone back to being a very good pundit. Now you said Jurgen Klopp, so I'm going to let you off the hook for that. Um, and Duncan, can you think of one or two? Well, I, mean, I think Jose Mourinho has just signed up to do a, um, a, a series of programmes for uh, Russian television. And um, not well, when he was in Portugal, he had the reputation for being an exceptional pundit and, and was, didn't do a lot of it. But he, he did either some TV pro, uh, commentaries where he, he, would, he would go into that kind of forensic tactical breakdown of games that he's, he's very good at. I think. Johnny's had experience of that in an interview. When you mm. ask him questions about football itself, he's he's just brilliant in explaining complexities of the sport in a very simple fashion. Um, and he was famed for that in Portugal. He also used to do these um, uh, written pieces for newspapers, which he insisted on on writing himself. Which again, it was the same theme. It's um, okay. I'm going to I'm going to show you exactly how I understand this football match, and I'm going to break down where where things went well, and I'm going to teach you something new. Um, so 
yeah, um, for all his criticism of pundits, that could be an area for him in the future where he, where he excels again. I'm going to put you both in the spot again because I've just thought of quite a good question. You know, these, these things don't come often to me, so I'm going to do it while <laughs> I can. Graham Sinis, better manager or better pundit? Ooh. Ouch, that's like a suey tackle, Ian. <laughs> I, I thought you'd like to that. To the, yeah. the Sunday Aye. Times football correspondent. That's horrendous, Ian. I know, I know. <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, okay, um, you could abstain if you want, Johnny. No, of course, was, knowing it's true, you would never abstain from anything. He was a great manager at Rangers, and he's been a great pundit uh, for Sky. And there might have been some jobs in between that, but I think, let's say, he's good at both. And, and you're certainly very diplomatic. Well done on that. <laughs> uh, Donkey, can we can we get your butterfly point of view or would you rather abstain on this one? He was best at being a footballer. Well, oh. of, that, of that, there is no doubt. That's a very good, very, very good answer. So I'd like to thank Swapnil uh, for his very, very interesting question. I'm sure you loved to hear the sound of us all squirming in our seats as the question was asked and we tried to answer it for you. But it's come to that point in this episode where it's time to award our now legendary Donkey Award. Now, we're going to break with tradition today and we're going to ask our guest Jonathan Northcroft to present the award. Well, Duncan, the man who obviously is the inspiration behind this award, will open the golden envelope and read the nominations. And this year, sorry, this week, I should say, the category is the David Cameron Award for when it's all went wrong, but it's absolutely nothing to do with me. Thank you, Ian. Um, it was uh, it's hard to find uh, uh, a limited list of candidates for this award um, because it's such a speciality of football managers, but I'll, I'll go through them. Uh, the first one I've got here is from uh, the 30th of January um, this year, um, after Liverpool won, Leicester won. We have uh, Jurgen Klopp saying, it's the first time I experienced snow in England, so that's pretty difficult. The team with the ball struggles more with it, that's clear. I think our counter-attacks were more defended by the pitch than by the opponent. So, snow is an excuse. Um, candidate number two, 4th of February that's, that's, this year. That's no excuse, Duncan, snow no excuse. <laughs> some, some have said such, some have said such. 4th February, West Ham United, 1, Liverpool 1, Jurgen Klopp. I heard that our goal was offside. Pretty sure that the referee knew that in the second half because in 50-50 situations or 60-40, it was always a free kick for the other team. So that was a bit hard. And uh, the final nomination, uh, 27th of January last year, after Liverpool 2, West Bromwich Albion 3, um, Jurgen Klopp, blaming the television company this time. The actual, the actual extra time in the first half should have been 10 minutes I heard that television said it's not bigger than four minutes. Of course, that's not possible. You can't cut match time because there is something else to broadcast. Um, it should be noted that um, Jürgen was blaming them three days after the event um, for adding uh, not enough injury time at halftime in a game in which his own player scored during injury time um, against the team who were relegated at the end of the season. And Johnny, uh, it's your um, pleasure <laughs> and I'm sure very difficult to decision <laughs> to decide who's the winner yeah. of this week's Dunkey. Well, unlike Duncan, I'm a, I'm a big Jurgen Klopp fan. Um, so this, you put me in a very invidious position. But I do, I think the, I think the, um, the West Ham um, offside um, complaint was very odd. 
I have to say. Uh, yeah, Liverpool. Liverpool got the best out of that one. You can continue the debate on Twitter with her own account at Transfer Podcast and with her pundits at Duncan Castles, at J Northcroft, and I'm at Garbo SJ. Uh, thank you very much, Johnny. Uh, we'll excuse you now. And thank you very much to Duncan as well. Great to have you back. Um, so we are we are available on all your favourite podcast platforms and if you like what you hear and you, you know we, thousands of you do please log into iTunes and give us a five star review which allows us to reach many more people and make them happy as we as you are that's all for now for this episode thanks for listening.